It's funny, the first service was quite a bit fuller than this is. I think everybody came to the first service so they could get on the road. I don't blame them. Well, last week, Pastor Tom uh, talked about who we are as human beings. What does the Bible teach about what a human being is? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? He titled his sermon, Who Are You? Well, this week, we're not talking about who are you, we're, we're talking about says who. So, I'm sure you, you used this phrase, maybe some of you more than others, when you were growing up, right? My dad can beat up your dad. Oh, yeah, says who? You can't ride your bike in there, there's no trespassing. Oh, yeah, says who? John, it's illegal to buy fireworks in the state of Illinois. Oh, yeah, says who? It's, it's purely conjecture. That didn't happen. Um, and, and the reason this connects is because that, that question, says who, is all about authority. We want to know, on, on what authority? Who, who says that I can do or that I can't do this. And it connects to us today because regardless of who you are, why you're here, and, and if you're a visitor here, we, we love that you're here, we welcome you, and we hope that you'll come back. But the reason that we need to, to talk about this is because every person has a set of religious beliefs. Even the, the most hardened atheist has religious beliefs. That, that belief is just, I believe that the God I don't believe in doesn't exist. So everyone from the most hardened atheist to, to the most faithful believer has a set of religious beliefs. And, and the thing that we have to, to wrestle with is, on what authority do we believe something? What's the ground that causes us to believe what we believe? And so for, for some people, it's, it's their intellect. I, I believe what I believe because that's, that's what I think. For others, it's, it's traditions and, and it's just what other people tell them. If you come from a, a Roman Catholic background, the authority is the church, specifically the Pope. For evangelical Christians, we believe that our highest, ultimate, and final authority is the Bible. And what I want to do this morning is I want to take you to a passage in 2 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to talk about the authority of Scripture. Because this is not something that, that we have just you know, put on top of the Bible and said, well, God gave us this nice book and now we are going to make it our authority. No, we want to, I want to tell you that this is what the Bible says about itself. And so right now, if our ushers would come and would hand out Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, they would be happy to give you one. And if you don't own one, this one is yours to keep. We'll be in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. So, we want to we look at three questions this morning. First, where did the Bible come from? Second, 
how did we get it? And third, why can I trust it or why should I trust it? And we're going to see in 2 Peter that Peter answers all three of these questions. And this is a unique text because this is one of the only places in Scripture where all three of these ideas are packed really tightly together in just three verses, but all these ideas are here. This isn't the only place that they are, but it's one of the most convenient places to teach it because they're all right there in close succession. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we will jump into the text. Lord, you, you said and we believe that when your word is rightly preached, your voice is truly heard, and so will you empower me to preach your word rightly and faithfully, all of us to, to meditate on it, that the Holy Spirit would illumine our hearts that we might understand it that we might see Jesus more clearly, we might understand ourselves better. Your word is a light and a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Peter chapter 1. The book of Second Peter deals in large measure with this question of authority. So Peter had written a letter, we call 1 Peter, to the same group of people, uh, and he was teaching about some other things, and, and then some false teachers had come into the, the community that these people were in, and, and they were starting to question things, specifically questioning the authority of Peter and the apostles, and the authority of the Scriptures. And they were... They were introducing what, what Peter calls destructive heresies, denying even the master who bought them. We see an example of it in chapter 3. He says that, that one of the things that they are, they are questioning specifically is the return of Jesus. So he says in chapter 3, verse 3, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. It's like, oh, Jesus is coming? We'll prove it. Where is He? Nothing has changed. And they're sowing this doubt among the believers. So Peter writes this letter because he wants to both uh, assure his readers that, that Jesus was indeed coming back, but then also to assure his readers that he and the apostles, and more importantly, the Scriptures, were a totally reliable source of truth. And so for us, we're going we're gonna to see that the Bible is our ultimate authority because its origin is divine, its words are inspired, and its claims are reliable. And this is what the Bible says about itself. 2 Peter chapter 1, and I will read to give you context beginning in verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16, listen, this is the Word of God. 
For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased." We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So first, we want to start by by asking the question, where where did this Bible come from? And so in verses 16 to, to 18, Peter says, Listen, you can trust our authority. We were with Jesus. We saw this stuff happen. We, we heard God speak to him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says, and then you can also trust the Scriptures. Now, let me tell you about them and why you can trust them. So that's where we're focusing on, verses 19 to 21. And the first thing that we need to, that we need to come to, to grips with is, where did the Bible come from? And I don't mean... Your, your local bookstore where you bought it or it got delivered in an Amazon box. Where did it come from? This is where we say that the Bible's origin is divine. Its origin is divine. Theologically, we call this the doctrine of revelation. We call it that because what we're saying is that the Bible is revealed truth. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you don't need to turn there, I'll read it to you. Paul says, Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. And the principle there is that just like nobody knows your thoughts, I don't care how long you've been married and how much you think you know exactly what the other person's thinking, you don't know that infallibly. Just like the only person who knows your thoughts and can communicate those thoughts is you, so the only person who can know what God is like and what God is thinking and communicate that is God. And so, The only way we're going to find out about God, anything that's true about God, is if He chooses to reveal Himself to us, which is exactly what we think the Bible is. So I'll give you this definition. Revelation means that the Bible is God's words about Himself, not people's words about God, and it discloses the truth about God that we would not know otherwise. We see this in, in our scripture this morning. Verse 20, Peter says, I want you to know 
this first of all about Scripture. That no prophecy of Scripture, and that's it's a different way of Peter just saying all Scripture. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. This is a tough word. It's the only place in the New Testament this word is used. And so interpretation, to some extent, is, uh, is trying to piece together, well, what do, what do we think he's, he's trying to say? So what it's not saying is, uh, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation of the Scripture. So we're not talking about reading and interpreting the Bible. It's something more like, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's uh, own interpretation of things that they see that then they write down. Right? And so it's, it's not somebody going out and saying, you know, oh, I saw that, that beautiful mountain over there. I think I'm going to sit down and uh, write a poem about what God is like. So that's, that's not what we're, we're talking about, your interpretation of things. It's not like a Picasso and his interpretation of human beings, which if you've ever seen a Picasso, you know, looks nothing like a human being. There's another translation that, that puts it this way, and I think this is helpful and, uh, and accurate. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of the prophet's own imagining. It didn't make it up. Verse 21, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. Nobody just decided to sit down and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write the Bible today. And then I'm going I'm to take it to God and be like, God, does this, does this work for you? No prophecy came about because a prophet imagined it or made it up. It was never made because a person willed it. Scripture is decidedly not from people in this ultimate sense. But verse 21 says, rather that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the Bible is not from man. It's from God. That's what it says. Why does that matter? Well, it tells us a couple of things about this God who's revealing Himself. We know that if the Bible is really from God, we know that God is personal. He speaks. He's not just a, a force that's out there holding things together. He speaks. Even through the very beginning of the Bible, right in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light. In the very beginning of the Bible, God is a God who speaks. He's personal. It also shows that God is not distant. Not only is he there and he's, and he's personally, and he speaks, he's not far away. And so this would be different than something like a, a religious system that's known as deism. And so deism says, this was very popular back in the 18, uh, 1700s, 1800s with uh, people who considered themselves to be smarter than God. Um, they, uh, they said, well, God's like a, like a clockmaker. He, he builds everything. And he winds it up, and he sets it in motion, and then he moves on to something else. And he's no longer concerned about what's, what's going on in that clock. Deism would, would say that, that God is distant, 
He's the creator, sure, but he sure as heck doesn't care about anything that's going on here. He's not going to get involved. And so you can believe in him, but it really doesn't matter at all. But, but if God has revealed himself to us, then it shows not only is he, is he personal, he's also present. He's not far away. And if the Bible is indeed revealed, if its origin is divine, then God can be confidently known. God, God reveals Himself to us because He wants us to know Him. And there would be no other way for us to know about God if He hadn't revealed Himself. So, Carl Henry, who was a, a Baptist theologian in the mid-20th century and wrote a lot about this idea, said it this way, if we humans are to say anything authentic about God, we can do so only on the basis of divine self-revelation. All other God talk is conjectural. So Paul picks this up in Romans 1 where he says that people have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they have, they have moved uh, to gods of their own imagining. Right? So, if, if you're not basing what God is like on what He tells you He's like, then, and a lot of people do this, there's a tendency to base what God is like on what you want Him to be like. And so, if you ask somebody who would maybe deny the authority of Scripture what God is like, I bet you you will find that they think, speak, act, believe a whole lot like that person. That, that God is going to have been made in that person's image. Right? So last week we learned we're made in God's image. We don't get to make God in our image. You find people start to, to imagine what God is like, say, my God is, is like this. It's a lot like them. And that's not what we do, because we say, no, the Scriptures tell us what God is like. Even in the places where we say, well, if I was making this up, I probably wouldn't have said that. Well, you're not making it up. And so we go to the Scriptures to determine what God is like. Now, if... If this is just a book written by people, then you all should get up and leave right now. If this is just a book written by people, because if it is, I might as well be reading the Courier Times or the menu from Franco's to you, because this is not something to build your life on if it's not from God. You guys can all go to the shore. But what if it is? What, what if it is from God? What if what the Bible says about itself is actually true? Is there anything else that you could build your life on? How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for us all in His excellent word. That's not the only thing that Peter tells us about Scripture. It's 
its origin is divine. So Scripture is from God, but now we have to think about, well, how did we get it? How did we get the Bible? So in verse 21, we see that the the Bible's words are God-breathed. The Bible's words are God-breathed. This is what we call the doctrine of inspiration. So that, that idea of God breathe and inspiration, those are analogous, those are, those are synonymous. Uh, and the reason I say that is because in 2 Timothy 3.16, there's a word that's used, uh, and, and the, if you were to really literally translate the word, it's just a compound word of God and spirit. And so it says, uh, all Scripture is God-spirited, or all Scripture is God-breathed, because the Greek word for spirit and breath is the same. And so, uh, the uh, New American Standard would say, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. But that's just what that means. Inspiration in spirit. And so, what it, what it doesn't mean is what we often mean by the word inspiration. We say, well, the Bible is inspirational because it makes me feel feelings about things. makes me want to go do things. It's inspired me. That's not what we mean. And it also doesn't mean the Bible is written by inspiration the way that a poet or a painter would be inspired by a sunset to create a work of art. You experience something, oh, that's so inspiring. I have to go create this, this thing now and tribute to it. That's not what we mean by, by inspiration. Inspiration, I'll give you a definition for it. We mean when we talk about the Bible being breathed out by God, is that God caused the human authors of Scripture to write in such a way that the Bible alone, in its entirety, down to the very Word, is exactly what God wanted it to be in order to reveal Himself so that what the Bible says, God says. So there are a couple parts to this that that Peter gets at in the text. He's already made it clear, okay, the Bible doesn't come from man. It's from God. But it didn't just drop down out of heaven to us. And it wasn't dug up on tablets in upstate New York. There is a process by which it, it came to us, and people were involved in that process. So the Bible is not not from ultimately man, its source and origin isn't man, but men were involved in writing it and, and putting it together. And so you see that in verse 21 where he says, clearly men, people moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It was people who were doing the speaking and the writing. So it's not like a, like a courtroom where there's a stenographer who's, who's taking down uh, every... Uh, every single word that's, that's written as, as if God had just been dictating it to them. It's like, Paul, time for another letter. Like, okay, God, hang on just a second. All right, go. I, Paul, I, Paul. Slow down. Right. So that's, that's not what happened. I mean, that's what some people think. We call that dictation theory. That's not what we believe. But it, it also wasn't like a Ouija board, right? The person kind of goes into a trance and they just... It's just kind of moving around, and then they look up, oh, look at what I wrote. 
They were in possession of all of their, of their faculties and literary talents and life situations. And so it's, not, it's what we call dual authorship. God caused the authors of Scripture to write exactly what He wanted them to write, but He did so without violating their conscience, without violating their personality. It was, it was really people who spoke. These, these people really wrote the Bible and really intended to write what they wrote, and God was superintending it. So we see that men didn't just speak from God, it was men who were moved by the Holy Spirit. That word moved is very important. It occurs three times in this passage, and to translate it moved is actually a little bit weak. The idea is something a little bit more like carried or borne along. And so it's used in uh, Acts chapter 27 to talk about a ship that was caught in a storm and the crew could not control it, and so they allowed it to be carried along by the wind. It's also used in this passage, two other places, in verse 17, Peter's talking about the transfiguration, he said, when, when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration, an utterance as this was made. That's the same word. It's the same word. It was carried to Him by the majestic glory. So, so God spoke and His words were, were carried to Jesus, were born from heaven to Jesus. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then the word occurs again in verse 21 where it says, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. No prophecy was ever carried by an act of human will or born along by an act of human will. But men carried by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so this is what I think Peter is trying to get at, saying Scripture didn't come from man, but Scripture is the Word of God in such a way that it's, it's just like when we stood on the holy mountain and we heard God's voice from heaven. The same way that that voice was born to Jesus, was carried to Jesus from heaven, is the same way that God speaks to us in the Word, just as sure as if you had heard it with your ears. Inspiration is not like Siri, though, right, where you hold down Siri, take a note for me. Okay, what would you like me to say? And then you say something, and it comes back with something entirely different, right? It's the autocorrect and things like that, where it's like, oh, Siri, you didn't get it. So that's not what happened. God didn't say, Paul, take a note, and then Paul wrote it, got something completely different. It's not like whisper down the lane where God said something and then somebody else told somebody else told somebody else told somebody else and at the end it's something totally different. It's God sovereignly superintending that the authors are going to write exactly what He wants them to write. And it's not just concepts. It's not just God gave them a general idea and said, hey, go for it. See if you can make this work. And they write something and then God says, mm, close enough. That's, that's the basic idea. It's a couple of mistakes here and there, but it's, that's close. We'll go with that. 
every letter and stroke, not just the ideas. And that's why we pay so much attention to the Bible, because we think it's, it's very words where God wants us to hear. And why does it matter? If we believe that, then to read or hear the Bible is to hear the voice of God. Now, the Bible, not, not what I say, the Bible is the voice of God. So we don't need to look elsewhere to hear God. We have it right here. Martin Luther said, there was a time when people would have gone to the ends of the earth if they knew that there was a place where they could hear God speak. We ought to lift up our hands and rejoice that we have the honor of hearing God speak in His Word. And that also means that to disbelieve or disobey Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Now let that one sink in. We don't get to just pick and choose what we like and what we don't like from the book. It's not a buffet. We don't get to come in here and say, oh, I like that, that sounds good, all that stuff about loving people and do unto others and, and, and that stuff, but I don't like this other stuff. It's really interesting to me talking to people about Jesus and they say, oh, I love Jesus. He was all about loving one another. I'm like, have you read other stuff that Jesus said? I'm like, oh, it was, it was all good. I said, well, what about the part where Jesus said, anyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin? And if you do, do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Like, Jesus didn't say that. I'm like, it's right here. You can't pick and choose what you like because when you do that, who's the authority? You are. You're the ultimate arbiter of truth who's saying, well, I believe that's true and, and that's not true. Because you're saying, my God would, would never do that. And then you're back to making God in your own image. Lastly, Peter says that the Bible's claims are reliable. So, Bible's origin is divine. Where did it come from? Its source is, is God. How did we get it? God inspired the authors of Scripture, breathed out the words of Scripture through human authors. Why should I trust it? Because the Bible says about itself that it is reliable. Verse 19, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. If you have the New American Standard... There are two words in this phrase that are in italics, and that means they're ones that have been inserted by the translators to try to make sense of what the Greek says. So Greek doesn't use all the same kind of words as English, and so they're saying, well, the word so isn't there and the word made isn't there, but it might be assumed, and so in order to make it work in English, we have to put those in there. So, but if we just go with what, what's there, so take out those two words, say, it says, we have the prophetic word more sure. And that word more sure means something that can be relied on not to cause disappointment. Uh, other translations, uh, I think, probably do a little bit better job when they say it's, 
It's not so much that it's more sure. It's, the, the, the idea is it's complete reliability. It's all together reliable. So this is what we would call the doctrine of inerrancy. Inerrancy. In, not, errancy, errors. The Bible does not contain any errors. So let me give you a definition for this. Because the Bible's origin is divine and its words are inspired, all the Bible's claims are completely reliable and without error in what they affirm and intend to teach. So when you pick up the Bible, you can, you can read it and know that, that what you're reading is not only revealed from God and it's the very words that God wants it to be, but that it's true. That, that it's, it's completely reliable. It will never lead you astray and will never contain errors. And this is where people start to push back, like, well, what about all the contradictions that are in the Bible and things like that? Yeah, there are, there are places in the Bible that are hard to understand. Even Peter says that. He's like, at the end of this, this book, he says, you guys have gotten some of Paul's letters. You know these things are hard to understand, which is encouraging to me because I find them hard to understand sometimes. But what it means is that at the end of the day, when all the facts are known, the Bible will have proven to have spoken accurately and reliably and without error in everything that it says. But we have to interpret it properly. Right, so this is, this is one of the, the caveats is that we can't just pick up our Bible, flip to a random verse and say, well, this means this and therefore this has to be true and if it's not true, then it's not. No, we have to, we have to interpret the Bible. We have to do a little bit of work. It's, it's like... Um, and the Princess Bride, when Vizini is using the word, right, inconceivable. Inconceivable. I think I did my Vizini impersonation better in the first one. Right, and then what does Inigo Montoya say? You use that word a lot. I, I don't think you know what it means. I don't think it means what you think it means. Right, so, so that happens sometimes when we come to Scripture. Somebody's like, well, the Bible says this. I'm like, I, I don't. I don't think it means what you think it means. Can I show you why? So we have to do some work in interpreting the Bible. And uh, you might say, how do, how do I do that? Well, you're in luck. I have a book for you. <laughs> it's called The Knowable Word, and it's a short little book. See how short it is? And it's basic Bible study methods. How do I read the Bible for myself and interpret it well and responsibly? How do I accurately handle the word of truth? So those are available back on, on our book cart. Why does inerrancy matter? Well, if, if the Bible contains errors, then there's no reason to trust any of it. And so again, we're just kind of wasting our time reading it unless we want it for its literary beauty. John Wesley said, if there is one error in this book, then it is not from God. It, 
If there are errors, then we have no reason to trust that God is trustworthy because if we think that this book is exactly what God wants it to be and then we say, oh, but there are errors, then we're saying that God can lie and intentionally lead us astray. The Bible says God cannot lie. And so if something is indeed His Word, it is impossible for it to lie. But if it's true, if everything is true, then we can trust both the Bible and the God who speaks. Now, there's a lot of stuff that we could get into here. I left a whole lot of stuff on the cutting room floor. But if you're interested in knowing a little bit more about what all of these things mean, we're talking about inspiration and authority and, and inerrancy, I have another book for you. This one's called, Can I Trust the Bible? by R.C. Sproul. Not only is this one short, see how short it is, it's also cheap. $265. Now, just so you know, I don't, I don't get any money from these. So, whether you buy them or not doesn't, doesn't affect the bottom line for me. I want you to buy them because I think they'll help you. Here endeth the lesson. Now, if the Bible is true, then it also means that we don't have to flee from challenges that people have for what it teaches. Because if we're confident that the Bible doesn't contain errors, then we're saying that, yeah, in the end, when everything is known, we will see that the Bible has indeed spoken accurately. Now, that might not always fit with our particular pet interpretations of things, but the Bible itself will always be proven to have spoken accurately about all things it teaches and affirms. And there are those things that are hard to understand. There are things that appear to be contradictions. There are things that are difficult issues. One encouragement for you is that none of those are new. They have been around for 2,000 years, and we've known about them for 2,000 years. So there is very little that you would be able to find in the Bible that you will not also be able to find a really good answer for why it is the way it is. So, what should we do? The Bible is indeed from God. If its origin is divine, if its words are inspired, so it's exactly what God wants it to be, if its claims are reliable and without error, what should we do? Peter tells us, pay attention. I don't mean pay attention like you pay attention to what your kids are trying to tell you while you're watching the game. That's, that's half paying attention. So we all have spiritual ADD. We're all getting all sorts of information from, from all over the place, and there's never a time where we're focused on, on paying attention to what the Word of God says. So what does paying attention mean? I'll use our statement of faith as, as an example. Our statement of faith says that, that because the Bible is authoritative, it should be believed in what it teaches, trusted in what it promises, and obeyed in what it commands. Believed in what it teaches, trusted in what it promises, and obeyed in what it commands. 
So let's do a brief case study. The Bible teaches that Jesus was the Son of God, God Himself become a man. John 1.1, John 1.14. The Bible teaches that Jesus died on a cross and that in that death He was bearing the penalty that our sins and rebellion against God deserved. The Bible teaches that the sinless King was dying in the stead of sinful traitors who deserve only God's righteous and just wrath and judgment. Isaiah 53, 4-8, 1 Peter 2, 24. The Bible teaches that Jesus did not stay dead, but that He was raised from the dead, validating that He was indeed the Son of God and had indeed fully paid for all of our sins with His precious blood. Romans 1, 3 and 4, Romans 4, 25. Do you believe that? Do you believe what the Bible teaches about Jesus? The Bible promises that whoever ceases trusting in themselves and their works and instead transfers their trust to Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sins will not be condemned but will have eternal life, John 3.16, Romans 4.5. The Bible promises that no one who comes to Jesus trusting in His death and resurrection for forgiveness will ever be cast out. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? The Bible commands us to believe the testimony that God has given us about His Son in the Bible and to cease trusting in ourselves and to believe on Him for the forgiveness of our sins, Acts 17, 30, Acts 26, 20, 1 John 5, 10. And the most important command to obey in Scripture is not one of the Ten Commandments. It's what Jesus answered when the Jewish leaders asked Him, what shall we do so that we may be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe on Him whom He has sent. That is the most important command for you to obey. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Have you obeyed that command? God has spoken in His Word. And He has promised that anyone who comes to Jesus in faith will not perish but have everlasting life. So I would invite you, if you're here and you are not trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation, and ask yourself this question, if I were to die and stand before God and have to give a defense for why He should forgive me, what would I say? I've been a good person. I'm not as bad as the other guy would say, no, I would say, God, you promised in your word that whoever believes in the Son is not condemned. And so as we close, I want you to walk away with confidence that this book is reliable. It's from God. It's worth our time, our careful attention. Let's pray. We do thank you, Lord, for the testimony of your word. You have chosen to speak to us and to 
communicate things about yourself to us, things that we could not possibly have known otherwise. Give us diligence in being attentive to your word that we might know you better, that we might see more clearly the Lord Jesus and all of his glory and grace. We thank you ultimately that the Bible's testimony is that we are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Have a wonderful holiday weekend.